The information presented in this podcast is of a general nature and is intended for educational and entertainment purposes only. It should never be used as a substitute for mental care, medical care, or for prevention, diagnosis, or treatment of any other illness. Always consult with a mental health or healthcare professional before engaging in any activities promoted in this podcast. Have you ever wanted to be a superhero? Join clinical psychologist Dr. Janina Scarlett and host Dustin McGinnis as they explore the psychology behind your favorite TV shows, movies, books, comics, video games, and more. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to Superhero Therapy with Dr. Janina Scarlett. I am your host, Dustin McGinnis. I am a musician, filmmaker, and all-around fanboy. And I'm Dr. Janina Scarlett. I'm a clinical psychologist, author, and a full-time geek. So today we are very excited to be covering Stranger Things Season 4. It is awesome. Stranger Things is back and hell is following with it. I mean, it's so cool. There will be a legion of spoilers, so please take heed, adventurers, or else this episode will turn you upside down. This season is a wild ride, and it's so much fun. One of my personal highlights of this season was the introduction of the awesome new character, Eddie Munson. He's this wild metalhead dungeon master, and he's the leader of the Hellfire Club, which is a Dungeons & Dragons club. (laughs) I really relate to Eddie's character. He was essentially me when I was in high school. I was a long-haired, heavy metal musician, nerdy D&D kid just like him. He was me. And seeing him shred Metallica's Master of Puppets on a Warlock made me just bust out my Les Paul and start relearning that awesome tune. It was so much fun. Is there a highlight that sticks out for you? Oh my gosh. Honestly, the entire season, both parts. I definitely loved the Master of Puppets scene. And I think one of my favorite parts was the episode where Max gets taken over by Vecna and she goes to the upside down this hellish burning kind of version of it and it was just so cool to see how amazing and brave she is because even in this terrifying environment on his turf she still fights him yeah she like attacks his neck and everything and breaks free that's a really cool scene i mean this whole damn season was just so much fun this season's antagonist is named vecna And a very cool thing is Vecna is actually a Dungeons & Dragons character, an actual Dungeons & Dragons character. The D&D character was based on a powerful wizard who became a lich, and a lich is essentially an undead spellcaster. Much like the D&D character, Vecna started out as a young boy named Henry Krill who had special powers. Unfortunately, Henry is kind of sociopathic. Can you discuss the nature of sociopathy and the qualities Henry presents that support my assertion? here. Sociopathy is not actually a mental health diagnosis, but some individuals who are considered to be sociopaths might meet the condition of antisocial personality disorder. I want to be very clear that not everybody who meets the criteria for antisocial personality disorder or quote-unquote sociopathy meets all of the criteria and all the symptoms that I'm going to be talking about. There are some individuals who are, for example, incapable of empathy, but don't ever break the law. And so in kind of the stereotypical sense, individuals who are sociopaths are believed to be incapable of empathy, 
They tend to be more manipulative, maybe sometimes lying or gaslighting in order to get their way. They might be more likely to break the rules or break the law. And we certainly see that in Henry, right? He manipulates Elle in order to get what he wants, in order to be freed. He doesn't seem to possess empathy toward other people. He becomes very violent, which is also a stereotypical trait. This, again, doesn't mean that every single person in this diagnosis will act in this way. We see him killing animals. I was going to ask about that. (laughs) Almost for pleasure or out of curiosity. It is believed that some individuals with antisocial personality disorder might underproduce certain chemicals, such as dopamine, for example, and so they might be more likely to engage in high-risk, thrill-seeking behaviors. And in some cases, that means hurting other people or other animals. And so with Henry, we're seeing this really violent side of what is likely an example of ASPD, a pretty extreme representation of it. Yeah. As he's growing up and as he becomes Vecna, he's so brutal. And one of the things that Vecna does to his victims that really stands out to me besides snapping bones, although snapping his victims' bones is cringy, he also gouges out their eyes. I've searched for some kind of symbolism for this behavior, but I'm at a loss. Any ideas what this can symbolize? Honestly, I think just who he is, the way that Vecna preys on his victims, I thought that the way that he kind of breaks them down, he acts as almost like when we feel burdened and heavy from maybe trauma that we carry and we might feel broken down and it might be hard for us to see the world in front of us. I don't know the writer's intention behind us, right? I don't I don't know what the writers intended. Of course, there's so much room for interpretation, but to me this seemed like such a wild way to represent this monster who stalks his victims in this way. Yeah, and even his father ends up gouging his own eyes out so he can kind of be with his family or whatever. Mm-hmm. It's just really interesting. And it's said that eyes are the gateway to the soul right? So maybe, I don't know. A fun fact, though, that I want to bring up is in D&D, or in Dungeons and Dragons, there is an artifact. It's called the Eye of Vecna, and the Eye of Vecna is very powerful. It's a very powerful artifact that grants the wearer supernatural senses and access to a multitude of powerful spells. However, using the eye to cast spells incurs a small risk of Vecna himself tearing the wearer's soul apart and devouring it and taking complete control over the wearer's body and using it like a puppet. I mean, it's just cool. And it kind of reflects him a little Mm -hmm. bit. They definitely got some of their source material from Dungeons and Dragons, that's for sure. Well, it's interesting that just about every monster we've encountered, the kids had initially played against in D&D. The hooded cultists chant. Hail. Lord Vecna. Hail, Lord Vecna. They turn to you. Remove their hoods. You recognize most of them from Lockbar. There is one you do not recognize. His skin shriveled, desiccated, and something else. He is not only missing his left arm, but his left arm. 
dead. Killed by cats. So it was thought, my friend. So it was thought. But Vecna wins. That is really interesting. It's maybe in one of their minds. Like, <laughs> the like whole a Demogorgon. Thing. Yeah, yeah, all of them. And the mind, mind flare. A shadow grows on the wall behind you, swallowing you in darkness. It is almost here. What is it? What if it's the Demogorgon? Oh, Jesus, we're so screwed if it's the Demogorgon. It's not the Demogorgon. The Demogorgon. Oh. We're deep shit. The Mind Flayer. What the hell is that? It's a monster from an unknown dimension. It's so ancient that it doesn't even know its true home. Okay, it enslaves races of other dimensions by taking over their brains using its highly developed psionic powers. Oh my God, none of this is real. This is a kid's game. No, it, it, it's a manual. And it's not for kids. And unless you know something that we don't, this is the best metaphor. Analogy. Analogy. That's what you're worried about. Fine. But an analogy for understanding whatever the hell this is. Okay, so this mind flamer thing. Flayer, mind flayer. Another interesting thing about Vecna is Vecna targets his victims. He preys on those who are struggling and are haunted by their past traumas. Why do you believe those who are haunted by their past are more vulnerable to Vecna's curse? And how does Vecna and the Upside Down relate to mental health? Well, you know, again, I don't know the writer's intentions, but as a mental health professional and looking at it as a potential metaphor, what I saw is a representation of what happens when we are going through trauma. Like Max, individuals who are going through trauma are likely to blame themselves, even though they weren't responsible for what happened to other people. So in Max's case, she blames herself for her brother Billy's death, even though she wasn't the one that killed him. It was the mind flare, right? And very much like the upside down, I think when we're going through trauma or depression or other forms of physical or mental illness, I think it feels like we're not quite alive anymore sometimes, you know, as we're in a deep, deep depressive state. I think what people who don't go through this might not understand is that we can't just quote unquote snap out of it, right? Like how we saw, for example, Nancy's eyes glaze over when Vecna took over. Mm -hmm. She couldn't just come out of it on her own, right? It took Vecna releasing her with Max. It took her friends bringing her back. And I think sometimes when we're at the depth of our struggle, it feels like we're in the upside down. It feels like we're screaming from the upside down and nobody can hear us mm. and sometimes it can be just so empowering to have a trusted friend bring us back to the right side up mm -hmm. right and, <laughs> right and up. help us ground and and help us you know climb over like yeah. like the kids did and come back yeah there's so much awesome symbolism there for interpretation <laughs> you know but you're right we don't really know what they were thinking when eleven is younger and she's training in the secret hawkins laboratory she unknowingly meets henry creel or vecna and he just happens to be an orderly in the lab henry at this time begins to manipulate l and essentially grooms her can you discuss what grooming is and how Henry uses it so effectively on Elle? Grooming is a technique that some abusers, especially perpetrators of sexual abuse, use, but also individuals who are trying to manipulate somebody. So grooming is a way of gaining a trust of somebody, usually of a child or somebody who's in a vulnerable state, in order to get them to trust the perpetrator and to get them to do what they want. So 
Henry was grooming Elle to help him to be released. To remove the chip. To remove the chip, yeah, to to remove his neck shackle, (laughs) if you will. Sometimes this kind of behavior is seen in adults when an adult becomes overly friendly with the child, maybe buys the child lots of either candy or toys or lets the child sit on their lap. That's not to say that there are not nice people out there who genuinely care about kids, but in grooming behavior, it is very intentional and it is to build the child's trust so that if or when the sexual abuse occurs, the child might not tell on the perpetrator. Mm. Man, that's just awful. It's just horrible. The first victim of Henry Crail when he's Vecna, he kills his family when he's a boy, and who knows if he killed other people, we don't know. But his first victim as Vecna is the queen of Hawkins High School. Her name is Chrissy Cunningham, and she's the most popular girl in school. Chrissy suffers from an eating disorder that is seemingly brought on by her mother's emotional and mental abuse. Her mother can be heard on one of the visions that Vecna forces Chrissy to have, and her mother is talking negatively about her figure. Chrissy? Mom? You're ready to try on the dress again? I loosen the back a little for you. Can you discuss this type of abuse and the subsequent result of disorders like Chrissy's? Absolutely. This is a form of emotional abuse and also neglect in terms of the mother not educating her child about the importance of proper nutrition. A lot of people don't know that eating disorder can lead to death. When people restrict their eating and when people are not getting enough nutrients, their bodies become severely, first of all, dehydrated, second of all, underproduce important minerals, and third of all, their brain is not receiving the kind of nutrients and fats that it needs in order to function. And so some people become very sick. Some people might develop like kidney disease, for example, and some people might die from this disorder. An eating disorder can be life-threatening. And Chrissy's mother shaming her into an eating disorder is a form of severe emotional abuse. People like Chrissy who struggle with an eating disorder to the point where they're unable to keep their food down um, often end up being hospitalized to make sure that they don't die and make sure that they're able to eat. I also want to be very clear that um, it's not only thin people that have eating disorders. People of all body sizes have eating disorders. Um, And unfortunately sizeism is something that still exists today and I think that this idea that women are supposed to look a certain way is what's perpetuating a lot of individuals to engage in eating disorders to potentially lethal effects yeah 
There is another horrible thing. <laughs> Chrissy is murdered by Vecna in Eddie Munson's home. She goes there to purchase drugs so she can stop seeing these visions. And when she's murdered, Eddie becomes the prime suspect. Of course, people look for reasons why someone would do something like this to someone like Chrissy and immediately look to find character flaws in Eddie, something for them to attack. Besides the reality that Eddie is someone who has long hair and listens to heavy metal music, they also attack the Hellfire Club, which is just a group of nerds and outcasts that are playing Dungeons and Dragons. Long hair, heavy metal, Dungeons and Dragons, they were all considered as being satanic back in the day. Dungeons at first regarded as a harmless game of make-believe, now has both parents and psychologists concerned. Studies have linked violent behavior to the game, saying it promotes satanic worship, ritual sacrifice, sodomy, suicide, and even murder. <laughs> Shit, he seems really revved up today. He's always revved up. We'll just act casual. 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 Right. Okay. Totally. Society has to blame something. We're an easy target. Exactly. We're the freaks because we like to play a fantasy game. But as long as you're into band or science or parties or a game where you toss balls into laundry baskets, you want something, freak? <laughs> <laughs> It's force conforming. That's what's killing the kids! <laughs> That's the real monster. What is your thoughts on this type of persecution and the skewing of something as wholesome as Dungeons and Dragons? I think people fear what they don't understand. And when something terrible happens, people want somebody to blame because they think it will give them a semblance of control. If there's someone or something or an entity or an organization they can blame, they think that the bad things will stop from happening. And so rather than taking a moment to figure out what happened, people jump into this group effect where they become angry, they pull out their metaphorical pitchforks, and they go after the individuals they think are responsible. Satanic panic was a phenomenon that occurred when D&D was kind of just starting out, but it's something that still exists in some parts of the US and Canada, I imagine in some other countries as well, where individuals believe that this wholesome role-playing game mm -hmm. that's just meant to bring people together is somehow dangerous. But I think we've seen things like that through the ages for a while, when women started reading books. Books were blamed for anything that was going wrong. Later movies were blamed, and now we're seeing video games as blamed for violence. Mm -hmm. Video games, D&D, &D, books, movies are not the reason why violence is happening. Unwillingness to understand other people's points of view are why violence is happening. Yeah. Like I said earlier, Eddie Munson was basically me back in high school. And I remember kids coming up to me, are you a Satan worshiper and all this stuff <laughs> back in the day? <laughs> Silly questions. So let's move on to 
some other characters that are in this show. <laughs> At the end of season three, Joyce Byers takes her sons, Jonathan and Will, as well as Elle, and relocates to California. It's never easy being a new student at a new school. Elle has a horrible time trying to fit in and make friends at her new school. She is bullied also. This is such a common story. What can you say about what Elle is going through here? And are there ways that kids can acclimate more smoothly? Is there anything that can be done for kids in Elle's situation? Well, I think Elle is going through more than just being a new kid and a new school. She is going through severe trauma, right? She thinks that her dad is dead, right? She mm -hmm. thinks Hopper is dead. And she just lost her powers. Hmm. So if you think of it as a kid who just lost a parent and maybe developed some kind of a disability or an illness, now also going to a new school, that's going to be very difficult for that kid to acclimate. And yes, bullying is common, but I think that individual is going to feel even more out of place. For anybody going through trauma, especially at such a young age, they're likely to feel like an outcast. And for anybody who lost a parent at a young age, they're likely to feel like they don't quite fit in because trying to figure out this kind of grief at any age is really difficult, but especially, you know, when you're in high school. I think for Elle trying to figure out how to function without her powers around other kids in a society that she didn't grow up in is in some ways similar to immigration, right? She almost immigrated to a whole other culture. And so there's so many things going on here, but I think it's not Elle that's responsible for ensuring bullying doesn't occur. It's the teachers and also the other students. I think that there need to be lessons on empathy. I know some schools are starting to incorporate socio-emotional learning into their curriculum. And I think that more schools should follow where math and writing and science are important, yes, but they're not enough learning how to have empathy for each other. Those are some of the most fundamental lessons. And I think having lessons and also discussions about this is crucial. I think that in some ways, the teacher, even though she observed the interaction between Elle and Angela, didn't do enough to step in. Mm -hmm. That's for sure. I was like, aren't you going to do something? <laughs> Anything? <laughs> when Mike comes to visit Elle, she makes it seem as though she has friends and is doing really well. On the other hand, Mike is struggling too. He's insecure and thinks that Elle will leave him because she's a superhero and he's a nobody. Oh, so he thinks. Oh, so he thinks. <laughs> but can you discuss why Mike and Elle are hiding their feelings and not communicating truths? I think in general, relationships are hard at any age. You have a teen relationship at that, and that makes it a lot more challenging. Now you have a relationship for two teenagers who are in a long-distance relationship, and that's a lot more difficult, right? They're 3,000 mm -hmm. miles away from each other. And on top of it, they're both going through different kinds of traumatic experiences and have to process them separately. I think that for both of them, they're scared to spook the other person because they don't know how to be vulnerable with one another. And after spending so much time apart, it's hard to remember how to be vulnerable. A lot of couples who are in long distance relationships 
first struggle, at least for the first few days, when they're reunited with their partner. We see that in military families and also with other individuals who are in long-distance relationships where it's exciting, yes, but it's also really difficult to remember how to open up to this person. And so we might want to appear in our best light. We might struggle being vulnerable and open with that individual, and we might fear what they might think if they really got to know what we've been through. And of course, Mike and Ella are perfect for each other. They love each other, and I think they fail to see themselves the way their partner sees them because if they did they would see how incredible and lovable they are yeah well there is someone else that sees how incredible mike is and when mike starts to share with will how he feels about l will gives mike an amazing pep talk when i stumbled on her in the woods she just needed someone it's not fate it's it's not destiny it's just simple dumb luck and, and one day she's gonna realize that i'm just some random nerd that that got lucky that superman landed on his doorstep I mean, at least Lois Lane is an ace reporter for the Daily Planet, right? But... Sorry. No? No, it's, it's so stupid, given everything that's going on. It's just, I, I don't know. I, I just... Uh... You're scared of losing her. Can I show you something? me too she commissioned it basically i mean she told me what to draw anyway my point is see how you're leading us here you're guiding the whole party inspiring us that, that's what you do and see your coat of arms here it's it's a heart and i know it's sort of on the nose but but that's what holds this whole party together heart because i mean without heart we'd all fall apart even l especially l these past few months she's been so lost without you it's just she's so different from other people and when you're when you're different sometimes you feel like a mistake but you make her feel like she's not a mistake at all like she's better for being different and that gives her the courage to fight on if she was mean to you or, or she seemed like she was pushing you away it's probably just because she's scared of losing you just like you're scared of losing her and, and if she was going to lose you, I, I think she'd rather just get it over with quick, like, like ripping off a band-aid. So yeah, Elle needs you, Mike, and she always will. Yeah? Yeah. After telling Mike this, Will turns away with tears in his eyes. It appears that Will is struggling with his own feelings for Mike. Although no formal acknowledgments have been made, it could very well be that Will is gay. Will's older brother Jonathan notices this and later lets Will know that he loves him and his, his older brother no matter what. I feel like he used to come to me more for help. Or to just talk, you know? It feels like you don't do that anymore. Not like before. A lot of that is probably my fault. In this last year, I know I've been distant. Or stoned. Or stoned. Yeah, 
But that has nothing to do with you. I mean, that's me dealing my own shit and hiding from my own problems. The truth is, I miss talking to you. I, like, really miss it. And I think, right now, we need to talk more than ever because things are getting just complicated. Right? A lot more complicated than Legos up the nose, you know? I just... I don't want you to forget that I'm here. And I'll always be here. No matter what. Because you're my brother. And I love you. And there is nothing in this world, okay? Absolutely nothing that will ever change that. You got that? Yeah. Yeah. I'm here for you, too. I know. I know you are. Come here. Can you discuss the power of this kind of support for loved ones? I don't think the show is holding back. I, I think it's pretty apparent that Will is gay. I think we've seen hints of it throughout the show, but mm -hmm. I think this season it was pretty apparent. And I'm so excited that we have an LGBT character this mm -hmm. season. I think that's wonderful. Well, we had Robin, too. Oh, yes, thank you. And seeing another LGBT character, <laughs> thank you. Yes, yes. It's so wonderful. And having a loved one, especially an adult, support a young person who is just maybe coming out about their identity, whether it's about their sexual orientation or about their gender identity, can mean life or death. We know the current suicide statistics, and when people have absolutely nobody supporting them, unfortunately, they're at much higher risk for suicide. When there's at least one supportive person in their life, especially an adult, that risk goes down by a lot. And so whenever I talk to family members of folks who are coming out about, let's say, their gender identity, and their family members might not understand and might try to enforce their own family values, whatever those might be, one thing I let them know is even if you don't understand, just remember that by trying to understand and by respecting who they are, by respecting their gender identity, by respecting their sexual orientation, you're saving their life. By accepting this person, you're preventing suicide. And if you understand nothing else, just understand this. And I'm hoping that there will be a day where we won't need statements like this, where there's no difference between being straight and being gay or being bisexual or pansexual or whatever, just like there's no difference in having blonde hair or red hair or white hair or whatever. I'm hoping in my lifetime to see that day. Oh, me too. Breaking it right down to its core, people should be able to be however they want to be and interpret this life however they want to interpret it. As long as they don't hurt anybody, who cares? Love is love, man. And, and it's also not about <laughs> wanting, right? It's about being true to who you are, exactly. right? And being true to how you're born and being true to how you identify. And I think it's so important and it's so important for people to be authentic with themselves and also to support other folks in being authentic. Well, most definitely. I support everyone to do whatever they want to do. <laughs> Speaking of loved ones, Dr. Brenner, or Papa as he makes all the children in his experiment call him, is a very manipulating individual. In fact, he gaslights Elle throughout the series and definitely in the penultimate episode. 
Can you discuss gaslighting and the significance of Elle leaving him to die the way she did? Gaslighting is a form of psychological abuse and manipulation. It's making a person doubt themselves. It's telling lies to make the person doubt their own experience, to make them think that they're remembering something wrong or that they didn't experience something that they did. I think Brenner's an expert at gaslighting. And I think he knows how much Elle cares about her friends and he uses it to get his way. Gaslighting is a form of manipulation and abuse. And he is, by every definition, an abusive, whether you call him guardian or parent or parental figure to Elle. Yeah, most definitely. What do you think is the significance of Elle leaving him the way she did? Well, I think it was her finally walking away, finally breaking free of his manipulation. Yeah. It was actually a very powerful scene. Papa. I love it. I want you to know I'm proud of you. So very proud. You are my family. My child. I've only ever wanted to help you, to protect you. Everything I did, I did for you. I need you to understand. Please tell me you understand. Mayfield has a huge part to play in this season. She is picked by Vecna to be his fourth victim due to her grief and guilt about losing her brother Billy Hargrove in season three. Dear Billy, I don't know if you can even hear this. Two years ago, I would have said that's ridiculous, impossible. But that was before I found out about alternate dimensions and monsters, so... I'm just going to stop assuming that I know anything. So much has happened since you left. Your dad was a total mess. He and my mom started getting into fights. Bad fights. I don't think he could stand being here without you. So he left. 
And you didn't leave mom much. She's taken an extra job and we moved to that lovely trailer park off Curly. Basically, ever since you left, everything's been a total disaster. And the worst part is, I can't tell anyone why you're gone. I can't tell them that you saved Elle's life, that you saved my life. I play that moment back in my head all the time. Sometimes I imagine myself running to you, pulling you away. I imagine that if I had, that you would still be here. And everything would be, everything would be right again. I imagine that we, that we could have become friends good friends, like, like a real brother and sister. I know that's stupid. You hated me. I hated you. But I thought that maybe, maybe we could try again. But that's not what happened. I just, I stood there and I watched. For a while, I tried to be happy, normal. But I, I think that maybe a part of me died that day too. And I haven't told anyone this. I just I can't. But I had to tell you. Before it's too late. If you can even hear this. I really hope that you can. I'm sorry. Oh, sorry, Billy. Can you talk about what you think Max is going through here and why she's pushing everyone away, especially her ex-boyfriend, Lucas Sinclair? From the symptoms that her school psychologist recorded, it seems that Max might be going through post-traumatic stress disorder. She's having nightmares. She's having flashbacks. She's having a lot of feelings of guilt, and she's pushing everyone away Social withdrawal and avoidance are some of the symptoms of PTSD. And I think for many people who are going through trauma, and especially if they're experiencing guilt and anger at themselves, they're likely to push away the people that they love the most and care about the most. Sometimes it's self-punishment, and sometimes it's a fear of hurting another person. Mm. Speaking of Max, I love that music is one of Vecna's weaknesses. And when Max experiences Vecna's curse, Dustin, Lucas, and Steve put on headphones and play her favorite song, Running Up the Hill by Kate Bush, which is now just super famous because of this season. 
the power of the song helps her escape and helps shield her from Vecna's curse when she's in the Upside Down. Do you have any thoughts as to why music is so powerful, especially against Vecna? I think it doesn't necessarily have to be music, but I think it's anything that keeps you grounded in the present. And I think there are a lot of memories attached to certain songs, right? When we hear certain songs, we remember when we heard them, maybe the first time or the last time. We might recall a specific emotion that we felt. We might remember the touch of a friend, for example. And so certain songs have the power to elicit not just memories but also sensations in our body mm -hmm. that help us to stay grounded in the present so i think that's why music is one of the best weapons against vecna yeah, obviously i'm a musician but i love music i love the way it makes me feel and sometimes i think it's just the frequency and the vibrations that sometimes elicit like emotions in me. Like mm -hmm. sometimes things will make me want to cry and it's just that frequency or that vibration. Mm -hmm. Music is powerful stuff. Well, the resonance that we feel from the music creates physical changes in our environment, right? Like yeah. airwaves are waves, right? Yeah. They, they're particles, they move. Sound and waves. <laughs> sound waves, exactly. And so sound therapy has actually been utilized for cancer treatment yeah. along with other treatments. Yeah. Resonance is some powerful stuff. So when Max decides to lure Vecna out by surrendering to him, she tells everyone that she will just recall a powerful, happy memory and run towards the light. She thinks this will help her escape his like mental torment. It can kind of be looked at like conjuring up a Patronus. I thought that too. <laughs> can running into the light of a happy memory reflect some sort of mental health exercise or practice? I think sometimes when we're pulled down by depression, right, or trauma, remembering vivid details of being loved, being surrounded by loved ones can sometimes be helpful at reminding us of important things in life remembering our favorite show or sharing details of our favorite maybe sports event, for example, can ignite those feelings again and can create kind of a shield between us and the particular thing we're struggling with. It doesn't necessarily take away the trauma or the depression, but it can give us a weapon to face it in that moment. Yeah. There are so many characters and storylines in this season, and we haven't really got to cover all the characters or the situations because, let's be honest, this is like a five-hour movie or, you know, four- to five-hour movie. It's long. <laughs> Though I wanted to make quick reference to Hopper surviving the explosion in the Yay. season three finale. Yes, Hopper is alive and does reunite with Joyce and Elle. Thank you.
Discuss their reunion and why it's so powerful before the very bleak ending of the season. Well, again, if we're creating mental health metaphors here, if there's anything that has been shown time and time and time again to be most helpful when we're facing the biggest challenges of our lives, it's community, it's unity. Whether we're going through the death of a loved one, whether we are going through some kind of a physical or mental health struggle, having people in our corner, people who truly get it, people who are fighting alongside with us, people who are holding our hand through it, that's what usually gets us to the other side. We can survive almost anything if we have supportive and understanding people in our corner. Mm, that's beautiful. I support you always, I unconditionally. <laughs> so we can literally have a 10-episode reflection on this amazing season. I mean, it's a very big, long season. <laughs> so I wanted to end this episode with a truly fun fact, or just theory, whatever. In an interview with the Duffer Brothers, they confirmed that the finale's bleak ending was inspired by Star Wars The Empire Strikes Back, which is one of my top five movies of all time. <laughs> and you can definitely, when you look at it through that lens, you can definitely see some parallels. For instance, much like Yoda warning Luke that he's not finished with his training, Dr. Brenner tells Elle she's not ready to take on Vecna either. Both Luke and Elle prematurely leave their training to help save their friends regardless of their mentor's warnings and end up being injured. So that's one. <laughs> if Elle represents Luke, then Max seems to be Elle's Han Solo. Where Han is trapped in a catatonic state in Carbonite at the end of Empire, Max is trapped in a coma in a hospital. <laughs> and much like the bounty hunter Boba Fett, the character Jason Carver and his white privilege brigade try to hunt down Eddie Munson and the Hellfire Club. His by all means necessary mode of attack ultimately leads to his own downfall. Vecna, or Henry Krill, is number one. He's the first of the experimental kids in the Hawking's laboratory experiment. He and L are both exposed to the same training and conditioning in the lab. Henry, much like Anakin Skywalker, chooses to use his powers for a darker purpose and is ultimately deformed and physically altered because of it. Much like Vecna reflecting the dark path of Anakin Skywalker, L embodies Luke's course and chooses to take the path of a superhero. This connection can also lead to a very interesting theory that Vecna is actually Elle's father. Dun dun dun. I just got chills. 
<laughs> I just had to end it on that fun note. I'm sure there are more connections that can be made, but this all leads to the formidable prospect that Season 5 will likely be the reflection of Return of the Jedi. Which is super cool. I can't wait for the final installment of this very entertaining series. I'm just like getting a little bit of chills because it was awesome. It was so good. It was long, but we plowed through it. We hope you had fun and we really appreciate you taking the time to listen. Again, my name is Dustin McGinnis. You can find me on Twitter at The Valiant Geek. I'm Dr. Janina Scarlett. You can find me on Twitter at Shadow Quill or Dr. Janina Scarlett Official on Instagram. Stay kind, everybody. Stay right side up and have a great day. <laughs>